Welcome to the Missions Podcast, the show that explores your hard questions on missions, theology, and practice to help goers think and thinkers go. My name is Alex Kochman, Director of Advancement and Mobilization for ABWE International, joined by my friend, colleague, mentor, uh, former boss, now co-worker, Scott Dunford in Fremont, California. And uh, Scott, it's good to see your face. Not that I'm in Fremont, but the internet does awesome things and I actually can see your face right now, which is cool. And I'm just grateful for the fact that we still get to do this podcast together, even with you on the West Coast, because uh, I love talking about missions topics with you. Yeah, and you're the first person to ever say that you're glad to see my face. So um, I'll take that as well. Um, <laughs> the more longer I'm in California, I keep wondering, do I need to add in comments like dude, or I don't know if I need to somehow West Coast myself more. But regardless, I'm glad to be on the show, excited to be able to talk about this topic that we have uh, today, which I think will be um, challenging, but also really helpful for people. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we, we talk about a lot of topics on the show that aren't just specific to missionaries that are just general themes from the Christian life or themes from theology, but we want to bring specific application to those that are involved in cross-cultural ministry. That's our heart today. We want to talk about lament and to talk about the topic of lament and mourning grief, loss, all those sorts of things that are interconnected. Uh, we've brought on Mark Vrogop, who is the senior pastor at College Park Church in Indianapolis. And Scott, tell us about Mark. Yeah, so Mark, like you just said, is the senior pastor at College Park Church in Indianapolis. It is a strong missions church. Before I ever knew anything about Mark uh, and really knew anything about the connection that Mark has had in a long-term way with, with missions in ABWE, I knew him as the pastor of one of my really good friends on the field. And I uh, saw firsthand how he and his church ministered in the lives of Stephen Carey. They're in restricted access. So I don't want to talk about what country they're in, um, but I saw that firsthand. And uh, he comes from Cedarville University, and he just wrote a book that I think is going to be really impacting and really helpful for those in missions, but also those outside of missions, Dark Clouds and Deep Mercy, uh, Discovering the Grace of, of Lament. Um, he's also married uh, to his wife, Sarah, has four children, and we'll dispense with those uh, preliminaries and just welcome Mark. Mark, thank you for joining us today. Well, Scott and Alex, it's great to be with you today. Thanks for your uh, service of the church for the Great Commission and also your interest in the subject of lament. So this is a a strange book in some ways, because you just don't hear uh, Westerners talk a lot about this concept of lament. We know there's a book in the Bible called Lamentations. Most people try to skip it as fast as possible and get onto the real stuff um, that are happier. So I'm curious, uh, what would cause you um, as a pastor to write a book on lament? The reason that I uh, took on the task of uh, exploring the subject was both personal and pastoral. Uh, from a personal standpoint, 2004, God rocked our world with a stillborn daughter uh, just a few days from uh, delivery. Her name was Sylvia. We still miss her. She was um, nine pounds and looked like she could just wake up. And uh, mm. in the midst of kind of walking through our own grief and then trying to pastor a church, counsel people, do funerals, et cetera, et cetera, I just began to notice that it felt like something was missing and how we were all processing our, our grief, how we talked about it. Uh, and as I began to kind of explore that personally, I just, I felt like there, there's a, a dimension here about how to be honest with God about what we're feeling that I just, I couldn't find in books. I didn't see that people were mm. comfortable with it. And then pastorally, I just kind of began exploring this, talking about it a little bit, um, 
kind of wading into the waters of particular psalms. And the more I did, including the book of Lamentations, people came out of the woodwork. And we just saw the fruitfulness of this message about lament. And I realized, you know what? What was going on in my life um, back 15, 16 years ago, I was lamenting and I didn't even know it. And so I set on a journey mm. to try and figure that out, understand what was going on, and to try and help reclaim what I think is the lost language of lament so that people can move from their pain to a renewed trust in God's sovereignty. Well, you also have a history of dealing with difficulty and hardship, not only in your personal family, uh, but also you have some experience with that and seeing that played out on the mission field as well. So tell us a little bit about what you've seen as far as loss and difficulty on the field and your own personal history in uh, there was a season of your life where you were nearly a missionary. Isn't that right? Yeah, there, it, it really was uh, the case. Uh, in fact, I call this the dark side of God's will moment. So right out of college at uh, Cedarville, my wife and I were going to front load our t internship to the seminary that we were going to by, to go to Ghana, West Africa with ABWE. It was a brand new field, English speaking. Uh, I was going to help start a Bible college. My wife was going to help start uh, elementary schools. That was kind of how we got in uh, to the to the country. And uh, so we started raising support. Um, you know, after our uh, our graduation in June, we were married a few weeks later, and then we went on a honeymoon. And then the second and third week of our married life, we were literally in um, college dormitories in candidate classes with ABWE. It was, I mean, it was a fabulous experience. We met some incredible people. God really used it to help us understand global missions. And to make a long story short, the political dynamics of the field uh, changed. The strategy to try and open the field also adjusted. And we just came to this conclusion about eight months later um, that, you know what, Th this is actually a closed door. And I remember calling my wife from New York City, having flown back from Ghana, just in tears, telling her, honey, this this is a closed door. And I, I'll explain it to you why. And our heart was just so broken. And um, in that moment, you have just deep questions like, Lord, did, did I not hear you call me? Am I, am I just tapping out because it's too hard? Um, is this wisdom or is this um, being a wimp? I mean, all of those questions. And you're, mm. you're on this sort of dark side of God's will where you know you're in an orbit that someday, somehow you're going to see the light dawn as to the purpose behind this. But when you're on the backside of the dark side of God's will, it is cold and scary and lonely. And now looking back on it, I wish that I had known then what I know now about the language of lament, because I think it would have helped me be able to process the pain a little more uh, biblically, a little more intentionally. Uh, in God's grace, we made it through that season, and I now see some of the purposes behind that um, hard providence. But it would have been helpful to have a language to know how to talk to God about this particular subject. That's that's interesting uh, that you mentioned that because I kind of went through something similar to that when I felt like God was calling us into missions. Um, and it took me several months of really wrestling through it to realize, yeah, there there is a deep sense of loss, even in good callings. Like there is a a transition and there is, um, you gain one thing, but lose another thing. And that's really painful. And I would say I did not have the language of even knowing how to pray about it, or even to recognize what was happening in my heart. Um, and, uh, being able to see 
uh, how the scripture gives us the language to do that would have been really helpful. So that's one kind of loss. Um, but you've also um, experienced even just in the pastoral side of ministry, some really significant loss um, with death, right? Uh, in, in, on the mission field. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. I mean, from a personal standpoint, we lost uh, one of our missionaries, um, Cheryl Cleveland and uh, Togo. Um, and additionally, you know, the, the, the surgeon there, the Todd DeKrieger was a guy that I went to high school with. I knew him before he was even a Christian. His wife, Jennifer was a sweet mate of my wife's in, uh, in college. And so, I mean, we, we knew that the Kriegers, uh really well rejoiced at just the the miracle of God's uh, grace and in, in um, not only um, providing uh, a, a field for them, but the scope of uh, Todd's influence. I remember on a site visit with uh, College Park there as we were considering investing in the hospital in Mongo, just uh, just being enthralled with uh, Todd's uh, with Todd's ministry, and uh, then to see. That so tragically end with his death. Um, you know, there's just a, there is a an unusual emotion of grief that just is so painful and so hard. And long for the day when those kind of um, uh, emotions and sorrows aren't going to be anymore. Um, well, and we certainly don't want to um, depress our listeners, but we share these things because we we want everyone to know that you're speaking out of a place of real experience, and that we're not treading into this topic lightly. Um, you know, there are some dark clouds in the Christian life and there's dark clouds in the missionary life as well. Um, tell us a little bit about how you've seen, um, what's, uh, and, you know, the, the Kriegers might be an example, but what would be a, an instance in which you've seen missionaries on the field, uh, apply these principles of lament well? And actually, before you get into that, define for us lament and why do you think it's important and why do you think it's something that we miss? Yeah, I simply define lament as a prayer in pain that leads to trust. So it's a prayer. So it's different than just sorrow or emotion. Um, in the book, I say, you know, to cry is human. We all enter the world crying. Mm. It's our first protest against what's wrong <laughs> in the world, even though we don't remember it. Um, but only Christians can really lament because Christians pray through their pain. And the reason that they pray through their pain is because they know the story of redemptive history. They know creation, fall, redemption, restoration. They know Jesus is going to come again. They know the problem that lies underneath all sorrows, which is sin. And they know what God did to resolve that issue. And so Christians lament because we're stuck between this world of brokenness and our longing for Jesus to make everything right. And so it's a prayer in pain, and then it leads, and that's really, really, really important. Uh, lament isn't just a, an emotional vomit where you just tell God everything you're ticked off about and wallow in your depressed, weary, um, hard emotions. Lament is designed to lead you to the resolution, which is to, to choose to trust, to ask God to help you, and on a regular basis, lament can be applied in order to help us know how to navigate through a world that is broken at so many levels. And so that's why lament, I think, is a really important language. And it's why a third of the Psalms are laments. And I think it's why um, people run to the Psalms when they're hurting, because there's something gutsy, something honest, something refreshing uh, in terms of what you hear the psalmists say. I I think that's that's relevant. I mean, I've I've made it a habit to pray through the Psalms because it often has me praying things that I wouldn't pray otherwise. 
Yeah, like one of my favorite uh, complaints is um, God. Uh, remove your hand out of your garment, or I'll put that in the Vrogopian translation. God, would you please get your hands out of your pockets and do something? I'm frustrated. I'm hurting. I want you to move. God, there are people who are dying here. Would you please move? And now we can talk about this more if you if you want. I'm not suggesting that you come with sort of a cavalier attitude or sort of a God, you owe me. I mean, you can sin with 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 lamenting improperly. You can come with a sort of a self righteous, you owe me the kind of life that I thought I was going to have perspective. But when you come with a humble heart, when you're ready to lay your burdens before the Lord, there's there's unbelievably poignant language in the Psalms. Uh, words like Psalm 77, has the steadfast love of the Lord ceased? Has he forgotten to be gracious? Where we just really wrestle with God, I know this is true about you, but today it doesn't feel like it. So what do I do with this? Many Christians think, well, that means I must not be a Christian, or I must be unspiritual. But Apparently, God doesn't think so because a third of the Psalms have this kind of tone in them. Yeah, it's interesting. I remember um, hearing John Piper talk about Job once and and referencing some of Job's foolish words as just words to the wind that that God did not take account of in some gracious way. And you, but you can see that. I mean, you reference Psalm Psalm thirteen as one of those examples of Psalms, and that's always been kind of a go to for me when I'm really hurting. Here he sees. He's crying out. He doesn't see God. He's he's God seems far from him and hidden from him. But as he's praying, you can even see the the process play out as he in the middle of it starts remembering the good things that God has done in this past. And it, it almost seems in those lamenting Psalms that the process of lamenting re- helps us recall act- the actual good things that God's done. Um, have you seen that take place in your life? Well, yeah, and that's the whole purpose of lament. It is to recall and reinforce what we know to be true. So lament enters the space of God, I I believe your word, but today I don't see things that intuitively make me to believe it. And so that's why lament is one of the most faith-filled things that you can do. You, you, you step into the messiness of, uh, of a broken world and say, no, 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 your mercies are still um, new every morning. That's what that's what Jeremiah did in the Book of Lamentations. In the in the darkest moment in Israel's history, in the situation that the world would have looked at and said, "Your God has abandoned you. He's forgotten you. He's destroyed you. Your temple is burned. Your city's ruined. You're all now exiles." Jeremiah proclaims over that moment, "The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end." And so, lament is designed to strengthen our commitment. Uh, to trust in God's mercy. It's designed to call to mind what we know to be true, but in the moment might not feel very true. So most uh, most laments have four key elements. And again, it's not linear um, because it's a poem, it's music. It's not designed to be just one, two, three, four. It's not a recipe, but it involves turning to God. In our, in our sorrows, we turn to him, laying out our complaints, secondly. Third, asking boldly, calling on God's promises, and fourth, choosing to trust. So simply turn, complain, ask, and trust is sort of the fourfold model that most um, laments uh, contain when you look at them. Or you could you could turn it into, wait, turn, complain, act, or you could do turn, act, complain, trust, and then it spells tact, and then it can be an acronym which is a great mnemonic device. And I'm saying that tongue in cheek as the guy who alliterates all of his sermons because I just can't help myself. But I, that's actually helpful for me as I'm thinking through it. Sorry, Scott, I know you had a question. <laughs> no, that, that that's uh, 
that's funny, Alex. But <laughs> <laughs> so I can remember a unique conversation I had once with um, we had these really great Jewish friends that were from Israel. And for some somehow we got on the topic of funerals. And I remember them talking about how when they have a family member that dies, they rip their clothes. Like that's the first thing they do is they rip something on their clothes. And I, I thought of something and, you know, obviously you see that in scripture, sackcloth and ashes and tearing their clothes, but then they get together as a family and just sit together and weep for a certain designated period of time. And outside friends bring them food and they just allow them to just be there and mourn together. And I remember listening to that and, and thinking I've got nothing in my culture like that. I mean, we put on a brave face. We, you know, are kind of stoic about it. If you're from a, a German or Dutch background, um, or, you know, or, or, you know, other cultures, they do have a better way of expressing emotion. So as you're diving into this, what is it about this name, this ancient near Eastern practice that, that should inform how we in the West, uh, maybe in coming from cultures like myself that didn't really know how to express emotion and certainly not negative emotion uh, very well. Um, how, how do you think we should be learning from these cultures, and especially the culture of the Bible, and importing that into to what I we're doing we as Western Christians? Heed wisely the uh, instruction from Ecclesiastes 7 that says it's better to go to the house of mourning to the house of feasting. I think that there are lessons that can be learned from funerals mm. that are mm. learned better in those moments than are learned at birthday parties. And I, I, I'm not against birthday parties. I'm not against celebration, um, but mm. they're different in terms of mm. their ability for us to remember what life is really about. So, you know, I, I'm involved with a lot of funerals and, um, you know, I've come home from a lot of funerals and hugged my kids uh, a little longer, tucked them in bed um, and talked with them. Uh, later into the mm. evening, um, just held onto my wife. Thank God for her a little more significantly because I've been to the house of mourning. And so I think there is something that we mm -hmm. ought to just pause and learn. And I don't think there's anything wrong with celebration. But I do think that in particular, in our 21st century Western, particularly American culture, um, we we kill it when it comes to celebration. And in fact, if you were to look at um, and I, I looked at the research on this, the number right. of contemporary Christian songs from a CCLI licensing uh, perspective that would constitute lament is well below 5%. So what's interesting is if a third, one out of three psalms are lament, but only 5% wow. are of our songs are lament, what does that say? And I think one thing that it says um, is that most Christians are not only unfamiliar with sorrow and suffering at a deep and um, lengthy level. We also don't, don't know what language we would use uh, if that happened and when that happened. Now, in the American history experience and church history, there is um, a, a church background that understands this, and that would be the African-American church. In fact, if you were to look for uh, a musical form, you could look to yeah. Negro spirituals as an example. And what's interesting is I've kind of jumped into this. I've had many African-American brothers um, tell me, hey, you know, our funerals generally and um, worship services and music, like this is a part of our historic tradition. And it's just interesting to me that um, a group of people who've understood historical suffering in the context of the United States, how that informed their church tradition and the implications of that, um, I think there's an opportunity for those of us, uh, 21st century 
um, white evangelicals to just pause and listen and say, hmm, I think this is a language we need to learn both because it's biblical, historical, cultural. And, and also there's an eschatological perspective that we tend to lose if we don't really understand that Jesus really is going to come back and we're stuck in the in-between world. I'm just curious if you've thought through this, like, why is it that 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 we struggle with that? And I say we obviously meaning probably more me because I, you know, obviously some of our listeners don't struggle with that. But why is it that we we're embarrassed about weeping or we feel like, hey, this person's been crying and they're upset. They lost someone very significant. It's been a week. Move on now. You know, I mean, we don't allow people that time to mourn and lament. What what do you have any insights in your studying of why we struggle with that in our culture? Yeah, yeah. I'll give you two, and there's probably a bunch more. Um, I'm cautious about giving you know definitive conclusions because it's so um, interwoven to so many things related to your experience, your background, you know, when when you've experienced suffering. But at one level, let's just talk about personal uh, realities, and that is that grief is just bottom line scary, and we don't like. I didn't like the feelings that I was having. In fact, when we lost our daughter, one of the scariest thoughts of my mind was, what if I never feel different? Because I can't live like this. And in the book, I talk about the fact that grief is not tame. And you walk around feeling like you got a six-inch hole in your chest. And just when you think you're getting better, something comes up and the waves of grief just come rushing back. And it feels like I'm at, I'm at, day two on this journey when I'm actually two years, you know, from now. And so grief is just an inexplicable and uncontrollable at times, uncontrollable, maybe is the wrong word, unpredictable emotion. And I give you an illustration. There's a brother in our church who experienced a really huge loss, long, long battle. And in our small group, he was slumped over an ottoman and just pouring out his soul in agony. God, how long? Why, Lord? Why? Now, granted, he ended in trust, but in that moment when he's pouring out his soul and he is weeping and wailing, um, I've written a book on this. I've studied this, and I wanted him to stop because it made me feel so uncomfortable, and yet I know what he's doing. I could even diagnose it. I could even affirm it. I could show him psalms that just echo his prayer, but there's something within me that I'm just like, I do not. This is so scary. And Part of me is I think God's built that into the human psyche and to the world as a reminder that there are otherworldly realities connected to death that just really shake us at our core. So there's a personal reason. And then briefly here, just there's a theological reason to this theological perspective. I think that that many people have an underdeveloped understanding of the role of suffering and hardship as it relates to uh, the Christian life. It affects how we share the gospel. You know, Jesus has a wonderful plan for your life, which is true. But he also said in this world, you'll have tribulation. Um, And so as as a pastor, one of the things that I'm very passionate about is trying to help people be prepared for suffering before it happens. Because when suffering comes, it's, it's, that's not a good moment to try and learn how to suffer. So you need a theological grid. And I think many, again, 21st century American Christians don't have a well-developed understanding of the role of suffering in the Christian life. They, they, they've rather added Jesus to sort of the life that they've always wanted. And when that gets taken away, it, it, it not only shakes them personally, but it shakes them theologically. Well, and, you know, I recall a time where I was sitting down with um, a mentor of mine 
who, uh, I, you know, I was sharing, he was asking me like, Hey, have you considered missions and, and asking some similar questions like that. And I kind of shared where I was at in life at the time. This was a few years ago. This was before I was working at ABWE full time. And he said, okay, well, prepare for God to break you. That was just his main comment there. And so, you know, you're saying American Christians don't understand the role of suffering in the Christian life. And so the, the, the reality is, is that as you hop into missions, then, you know, if you're unformed in that area of understanding suffering, if, if God is going to prepare you to minister and to serve, one thing that he's going to do is introduce hardship into your life to make you able to, to minister to others. Um, but I want to play devil's advocate here a little bit, because I, I really appreciate what you're, what you're saying, what you're pushing up against, you know, sort of the, the happy, clappy you know, beach balls in the pews kind of, of culture that exists within evangelicalism um, that that really just makes um, so much of life trite um, and, and doesn't fit with a third of the Psalms and the book of Lamentations and even things you see the Apostle Paul saying about his own sufferings and how he felt that he had the sentence of death in 2 Corinthians 1. Uh, but you know, couldn't, couldn't you also say that, well, we're all depressed enough. Um, we're all sad enough, mopey enough, and that our, um, witness in the world comes uniquely through our joy and through our rejoicing. And you even look, um, covenantally at scripture and you see lots of grief and sorrow as being a mark of God's people in the old covenant. And yet in the new covenant, it's this new wine, right? That isn't put into the old wine skins, that there's a, um, that there's a, an inherent, um, joyfulness and celebratory aspect to, um, where we are now, um, in, in the gospel, um, that, uh, that should play itself out as well. And part of what makes Christians unique is that we enjoy life and that we drink in God's goodness. And so, um, what would you say to maybe the the critique that would say, well, why why focus so much on learning to complain well when there's so much complaint all around us, um, and and why not focus more on joyfulness? How would you approach that issue? It's a great question, and I've I'm asked it actually quite a bit. I think it's a fair um, critique or um, a pushback, and it's an important question to answer. Um, here's what I would say. The, the command for us to rejoice in all circumstances, uh, give thanks you know, in everything, uh, to count all things as uh, God's kindness and working out for our good for those who love him, those things are 100% true and inarguable. And I'm not suggesting for a moment that somebody shouldn't rejoice or they shouldn't give thanks. My question, though, is how do they get there? So I'm suggesting that lament is the language that has historically helped God's people get there. And I would also argue it's how Jesus got there. You know, the book of Hebrews says that for the joy that was set before me endured the cross. True, joy set before him. So joy is there. But on the cross, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He quoted a lament psalm, Psalm 22. Uh, Romans 8, just before Paul says, you know, all things work together for good. He says, we're being killed all day long. We're kind of like sheep for the slaughter. He quotes a lament psalm, Psalm 44. You see, people don't understand that it's not an either or choice. Uh, in fact, in our desire to so focus on rejoicing, I think we've gutted lament and taken it out of the equation, where I think true Christian rejoicing sounds more like this. This is really hard, but hard is not bad. Um, I don't understand, but I'm trusting in God's goodness. 
my heart is grieving, but I will rejoice. And I, I think many Christians think that only half of that is true godliness. And the effect is, I think that then it results in many Christians either on the one hand faking it, they go to church and then, no, no, I'm fine, just trusting in Jesus when behind the scenes, they're not fine. Or secondly, they um, are despairing. So where they say things like, I, I don't even know if this is true anymore. And I've I've had believers on both in both ditches, and lament is the language that that takes grief, and it lays out the reality of our sorrows while at the same time confessing that I still believe that God is good. So it gives us a language to bridge the gap between the poles of a hard life and trusting in God's sovereignty. So how is this? You're, you've been a pastor for a number of years. You've been in a church that has gone through hard things. You've gone through very hard things yourself. How is this um, understanding of lament transformed the way that you do ministry and, and applying it then to a missionary or pastor who might be listening or to a lay person who's going to have opportunity to minister? Um, how does that, when you understand this concept of lament biblically, how does it affect your practical ministry? So it changes so many things. It just it adds a, a new uh, resource, which is why I think it can be really helpful for missionaries mm. on lots of levels. Although I've I'm not a missionary. I have, you know, lots of friends who are missionaries. We have missionaries in our church. And so I, and even, you know, I've talked with them about the practice of lament um, deeply, even the last couple of weeks as the book has come out. Um, so I think there's some enormous applications. And I'd even love to, to know how missionaries are seeing ways that this could be applied. Um, mm, so mm. Um, on a pastoral level, lament changes how I pray. So pastoral prayers on Sunday mornings, uh, we've incorporated laments into our uh, prayer uh, rhythm. So when, uh, for instance, the um, uh, shootings happened in New Zealand uh, recently, we offered a prayer of lament about uh, that um, killing of 50 image bearers to try and help our people know how to think uh, rightly. When, a, when a, a school shooting happened in Noblesville, Indiana uh, a year ago, I wrote a lament to try and help our people know how, how do you process and pray through something uh, like this. Um, it also affects preaching in terms of uh, tone uh, to be sure that we're not staying emotionally distant from the text, but kind of getting into it and addressing the hard questions or the poignant statements that are there. And uh, I'm an exegetical, expositional preacher, and that's our steady diet at our church. The, the downside of that approach can be more of an academic, here's what the Greek words mean and everything else. And again, nothing wrong with that, but that can create an emotional distance um, from somebody from their Bible. And I want them to know that the Bible bleeds with them. And I want them to not only see it, but I want them to feel it. So for, uh, for instance, um, a couple uh, last three Sundays, we just wrapped up a series on racial harmony in the context of the church. And before we started that very loaded sermon series, each sermon, I started with a lament prayer. And that lament prayer served just to kind of level the playing field, help everybody to, to know kind of where, what space we are entering in. And I think that's a, a way that it really uh, serves and helps the church um, singing and songwriting would be another one. I've asked our musicians to think through, could they write some um, some music that better reflects the tone of lament? And actually, they just released from our church and uh, uh, five songs that give expression to that. They're able to, to push the concept of lament deeper uh, by using a musical form. 
uh, asked them what would Psalm 13 sound like in 2019, and they did a fabulous job, um, you know, putting it to uh, to use. Has implications for um, for counseling. I've used it for uh, people who are walking through grief as we study. Let's say we study Psalm 13 together. We see where the psalmist turns, complains, asks, and trusts, and then invite people to then write out their own prayer in light of what Psalm 13 sounded like. So what would your lament sound like? And in the back of the book, I have some some worksheets that have proven to be really helpful in uh, helping people know how to be able to lament. So there's other implications, you know, small groups, um, uh, how to be able to care for a grieving person, um, how to think about um, youth ministry, high school, junior high. I, I think wherever there are humans, Wherever there are Christians, they need to know how to lament because our world is broken and uh, God can help us when we're hurting. You mentioned all these different implications in areas of your church. What is an implication on the field, especially as far as um, engaging unbelievers from other cultures, um, in other cultural contexts, other countries? Um, have you found that that understanding this concept helps people be more effective in their evangelism, reach other cultures better, um, understand people from, from different origins a little bit better? You know, I, I could imagine that it does, although I've not spent uh, as much time exploring that particular application in terms of evangelism on the mission field. So that would be beyond the scope of what I specifically looked at, but I would not be at all surprised if a missionary read this book, they're on the field, and I hear six months from now, this is what we did. And it was unbelievable because I've seen it happen stateside here. I've seen, um, for instance, there was a, uh, a shooting, a home invasion, and it made the national news. It was a church planter. His wife uh, was, uh, was killed, um, murdered in their home. Well, we had people in our church that were in that neighborhood, and we were studying lament at the time. And they opened their home to minister to their neighbors um, for, I think it was almost uh, two weeks in a row, every evening they, they gathered together and they walked them through what lament is and how they could enter into this historic prayer language. And so there were non-believers in that room hearing Christians expressing uh, lament. And that then led to a Bible study in the context of their, of their neighborhood. So, and that's one of the things that I, I think is an opportunity for Christians, no matter where we live or what culture that we are in, to realize that when brokenness shows up, we ought to be the interpreters of that for the world. We ought to help people make some kind of sense of it. And quite frankly, if we don't, then who in the world can? Christians know the story. And so we ought to step into, uh, into that space to try and, um, and help people. Um, I did talk with one missionary, um, his name was Gary Witherall, and he wrote a, a book about the um, assassination of his wife, um, and it's in the, it's in my book. I include just his story of uh, how he, he views lament as sort of the highest form of worship. And, um, this is how L lament helped him with his recovery after his wife's um, assassination. But, but what's interesting is, is he said that he learned to lament by looking at the brokenness of the culture around him. And rather than becoming either frustrated or judgmental, that lament tuned his heart towards compassion for the people that he was trying to reach. And so rather than seeing um, sort of the culture shock or the brokenness that was so evident as a barrier, he used it as a platform to increase his compassion for the people, not to decrease it. And I think wow. that's what lament has the possibility of doing. 
Well, yeah, especially not only, you know, for, for people watching missionaries process grief, but then watching them have that turn moment where they turn to the Lord. That's the part that's so particularly um, uh, striking uh, to, to the watching world. I think of Psalm 137, you know, because we're all exiles in this world. You have the people of God in exile in Babylon, and the the Babylonians are saying to them, "Oh, sing us another one of the songs of Zion that you guys like so much." And and that's a psalm of lament, saying, "Oh, how can we when we're in a foreign land?" And you you hear that grieving there, and yet that turns into trust as well. And you know this idea that wherever God has sent us in the world, um, that our our sorrows are real and they will happen. And, and, and that, that's just a given. Um, but that when the unbelieving world watches us turn to trust, then they're, they're looking and they're saying, Oh, I, I've never seen that before. And it's intriguing. Um, really, um, interesting. Yeah. And Alex, if I could add one thing, uh, in the book, I talk about that funerals, at least in the American context now are invariably called celebrations of life. Mm-hmm. And I don't have, I don't have an argument per se with that, but I've been to a lot of funerals that were really tragic and it mm. really troubled me that the tragedy of the moment wasn't being addressed. Mm-hmm. And I just, I, I wonder like the, a lost person coming in would almost be like, this is fake. Like there's so much. Well, and the cremations and everything we're doing is avoiding death. It's avoiding the whole idea. It's it's glossing over it. There's so much joy, which there should be. But I, I think, you know, we, we've so emphasized we sorrow as those who have hope. It's almost as though we we only hear the word hope in that passage. We don't hear the word sorrow. Um, so we've so emphasized hope that we've negated sorrow. And I think it just it just feels to me like Christians are afraid of the sadness of what grief was meant to create. And if we only focus on the hope and the joy and hear me, that needs to be part of the equation. If that's the only thing that we do, then the result is it feels like Christianity is really thin and um, not complete and not asking the right questions. But if you can come to a funeral service and say, um, as one of our pastors did um, with a guy who died of Alzheimer's and I, his homily is in the, uh, in the book, he said, the merry-go-round of life has stopped. And today we mourn the loss that a father, a husband, a grandfather will no longer be with us. His place at the table will be empty. And wow, that is so true. And yet, and then he went on to give hope, but without going to the depths of what grief really is, I think you diminish the fully orbed reality of what joy in Christ is really all about. I, I think to tie all of that together, the gospel that, that we as believers and that missionaries are going out into the world to share is a gospel that has a, a savior that died and rose. Um, but to under, understand the, the, the depth uh, of emotion, even attached with that, as we're telling the gospel story to, to not just look at the, the cross as, as just a, a cultural object or symbol or icon, but to realize that the gospel story goes deep into the, the heart of suffering itself. Even in evangelism, we have to interact with that. And so, Mark, I'm so grateful for the way that you're bringing this up. And, and uh, I'm excited to hear what comes of the book. I'm excited to hear how, how this impacts pastors and missionaries as they get their hands on it. How can people get their hands on the book and hear more from you and your ministry as well? 
Yeah, the book's available through various uh, outlets. Uh, Amazon uh, is one obvious, uh, real quick and easy place where people to be able to get it both in print and uh, in uh, in Kindle form. And yeah, my, my hope and prayer is that it is just simply helpful to people. When I sent the manuscript off, uh, my wife was standing right next to me before I clicked send. And my prayer was, Lord, would you just help people with this? And that's what I want to do. Just want to serve the church by helping to maybe reclaim this language that is, uh, I think, a real gift from the Lord because of the grace that it can give us when dark clouds roll in. Mm, Very good. Thank you so much for joining us, Mark. Well, thanks, guys. Great to be with you. If you want to get more great content on theology, missions, and practice, go to missionspodcast.com. And while you're there, subscribe in iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite listening platform. And please give us an honest review and a five-star rating. And don't forget to be sending your questions to alex at missionspodcast.com. Until next time, thank you for joining us.